How does a former pro NFL player launch one of the fastest growing healthy snack brands in the country? If you think it's only because he was a celebrity athlete, think again. Strive co-founder Gabe Karimi switched gears from playing for the Atlanta Falcons to assembling a team of business all-stars and working both smart and hard. This episode is packed with advice for anyone launching a consumer packaged good, but especially one in the food or beverage space. This is an extremely wide-ranging conversation. We talk about finding the right partners, acquiring manufacturing, stifling competition, getting into retail chains, marketing, and why they're not chasing online sales. Here's another interesting thing. All three co-founders are very wealthy. So why did they take on investment capital? Also, what the heck is built on? All that and more in this episode. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Gabe, you are co-founder of Strive Biltong, which is, uh, I I, I want to say beef jerky because I know you're trying to differentiate yourself from jerky, but for somebody just looking at it, that's probably the first thing that they would think of. So tell me in a nutshell, what is Strive Biltong? So Strive Biltong is a meat snack, a shelf-stable product that has uh, great benefits over jerky. It has typically 50% more protein in it than jerky's on the market. It has absolutely no nitrates in there, which are known as class one carcinogen that causes cancer and mental illness. And it has uh, low to no sugar. Right on. Yeah, I was looking at the ingredients because this is how I found out about it. And we'll talk a little bit more about your marketing later. But basically, a box of stuff showed up in my office. And it had your product and some other stuff thrown in there. And of course, that was the first thing I grabbed because I'm always looking for healthy snacks as well. And yeah, it's delicious. It's like you said, it's almost no sugar, very high protein. And that's the first thing I look at on any kind of meat product is whether or not it's got the nitrates and nitrites in it. And if it does, I just put it back on the shelf. Like we don't eat those at all here. Um, Where did the idea come from? So biltong is a process word, just like jerky's word. And kind of, it may be easier to clarify the difference between the two. Jerky is a cooked process over eight hours that have to get a certain temperature, internal temperature up there. Biltong is an air dry process that takes up to 14 days to fully dry. And that's the, the largest difference into if you're talking about the process of jerky. So Biltong originated from South Africa about 500 years. And what happened is people, they'd hunt large games and have no refrigeration at that time. And they'd have to find a way to preserve it or it'd spoil. They found a good way to preserve it that was uh, sustainable and had all the pathogens that might come into meat that make it spoil uh, not be active. And is that from salt? Like, how do you get rid of that? So the primary uh, difference between biltong and jerky would be the vinegar, a vinegar acidic acid that, you know, helps uh, produce biltong. Okay. Right on. Yeah. Cause you know, I, I've so yeah, so, so it's not a saltier product. It's, we actually are on average lower than most jerky companies. Huh. Yeah. And the taste wise, it doesn't, it's not overly salty, but I know some people use salt to cure meats and I know, uh, but then also I know like Ruth's Chris, I've heard they, they, dry age their steaks to where it actually forms like a layer of mold over the outside, which if you're a fan of Roos Chris, maybe this grosses you out, but then they, they cut that away and then, then you have this perfectly aged piece of meat. Is that a similar process or? No, because we never allow the mold to grow on the product. So the, the, the water, so the product is naturally preserved with uh, vinegar and salt. And salt is obviously used in our green food because it is uh, it helps preserve product. And, by the time it gets to the air drying room, that all the bugs and pathogens or anything that could have been bad to the product are no longer on the product, and we allow the water to remove. And once water is no longer on a product, and you have a low enough water content, 
uh, or sorry, uh, water activity on the product, bugs will no longer uh, be able to grow on the product. Right. Okay. And so where did the idea for the company come from? What made you want to start a company around this type of product? So I retired from the NFL in 2015. I was drafted first round and Outland Outland Trophy winner to the Chicago Bears. Got injured, jokingly say, played six good quarters, just never could kind of get past the injury. And I realized that, you know, it was no longer that same excitement I had. I was taking too much painkillers to stay on the field. And I said, you know what, there's other ways I think I want to invest my time and and have a quality of life later on in in my life with uh, having a family. So in 2015, I made the hard decision to say, you know, football has been every day part of my life since growing up as a little kid. And I'm going to end that and find something else. I always knew uh, my family is a big health. My parents, my dad's a lipidologist, which is a study of fats and lipids in the blood, a preventive cardiac. Uh, people over 6'2 have a thousand percent more likelihood to have heart disease. And heart disease is the number one killer in America. And obesity is a leading cause of that. So I knew my plain weight at 320 pounds was no longer sustainable if I wanted to achieve that healthy lifestyle. So and what's your, what's your height? Because if people look at the pictures in the show notes, you are towering over everyone. Yeah, I'm 6'7", and at my plan weight, I was 320 pounds. Okay. So, and 6'7", is, is very tall for even NFL. So, knowing those factors in my life and wanting to go down, I, I had the luxury uh, afforded me by, you know, on a NFL salary to be able to redirect my life and put myself to a, a more sustainable and longevity uh, you know, to enjoy my family in later years and stuff like that, that I wanted to do. So I took, I knew I was going to do, I took a year and a half and, and kind of got myself back into the shape that was, you know, out of, you know, cardiac and, and, uh, heart disease zone. Now in that process, that's a lot of food prep and eating right and exercise. And I quickly turned away from snacks. Uh, there was no longer, I became hyper aware of everything that was out there. And the number one go-to when I was trying to like, you know, be healthy and you go to somewhere to eat is kind of a meat snack. And all of a sudden I start turning over the label on these things. And first off, I knew that the preservatives probably weren't the best and everything like that. But then you look on the sugar content and you have per ounce, you have anywhere from six to 16 grams of sugar and jerky products, which if you look at the whole bag, you could have a snicker bar at the end of it versus the jerky. And I mean, besides the little added benefit to having beef, but you still consume the same amount of sugar as you would a candy bar. And I said, well, that's no longer good. Um, and I didn't know what I really want to do as far as a future career path. I was, you know, at least financially stable enough to choose what I want to. So I networked around. And I think the biggest thing is learning from the NFL. It's about the team and the people you surround yourself because the secret ingredient in the in a winning football team or winning sports is surrounding yourself with people that win and so i went into this healthy lifestyle i was motivated by you know wanting to produce that healthier uh snack and um after a long long series of uh potential uh places to throw my weight in and to get passionate about i came across my two partners uh joe oblos who founded prosups and Ted Casey, who founded Dimatize. And both of them are titans in their industry. ProSubs has one of the highest selling pre-workouts in America, and Dimatize was the, uh, you know, the pack leader in protein in the United States. And we all live that active lifestyle, and we said, you know what? You know, there's this, we're all kind of in limbo here between him. Joe just sold his business, and Ted sold his business. Uh, we retired from the NFL, and we all kind of had a common goal that we thought there was a opportunity and and a really need in the market for a high protein low carb low fat kind of thing and or not supplement but snack on to go thing because we knew the industry so well and knew and knowing that most of the stuff was utter crap that we felt that there was something in there for us so that's kind of how all three of us got together just because we saw that need we personally wanted that snack for ourselves and the opportunity yeah i feel like that's a, a struggle in, in a roundabout way it's a struggle a lot of people have when they have they know they want to do something and they kind of know the space they want but then it's like 
but what, right? And so how did you find that what? Because those guys from the supplement side, you know, you're talking like protein powders and creatine and pre-workout boosters. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's nothing all natural about those products really. And so how did you find this built on? Like what was the search process to come up with something that was original? Because I don't th- I've never seen another built on product on the market. Uh, so uh, that's a long story. So we'll start at kind of the beginning with that. We, we didn't know we, that was our goal is to have a convenience item that was high protein. Now that was, now do we want to go into the protein bar area? Do we want to go into poultry? Do we want to go into beef? Do we want to go into whey? The the ceiling was open for us. And that's why our first name was strive protein snacks. Cause we weren't sure what we want to do. We just knew that there, we wanted something and we we're going to find whatever that best ingredient was. We, the former, how I got connected with Joe and Ted was I had a former investment that came across that was a unique product where they used Turkey and Quinoa crisps. And although it was unique, it wasn't marketable at the end of the day. And really the, um, the whole point of partnering with, you know, winners and creating and surrounding yourself with a successful team is what you have to do. So ultimately, me and Joe and Ted all got together, but we were on that track of, you know, already working with thinking about USDA and, and using meat. And we kind of decided early on that we didn't want that artificial, that we've done that route, we, or at least Joe and Ted have done that route of, you know, way and, you know, not a true product where you can list, you know, five or less ingredients. So I think ultimately right away we said, you know what, we do want to go into the meat space. None of us had any experience with the um, USDA, and we very quickly realized that there's a six-week filing to get approval, whereas sports nutrition is FDA. It's kind of, you know, here are the guidelines, follow them. If you don't do it right, we'll come after you. USDA is, here's what I want to do. Can I do it? And they'll look at it. So it's a completely different uh, way of governing uh, standards. So while we were waiting here, we were researching all our other options because, okay, well, we're not going to sit around while, you know, we're get this approval. Let's look at other options. And through research, uh, looking at high protein, low carb stuff, Biltong was stumbled on and it was a simple internet search is how it happened. And Joe was the one that researched it and said, you know what, Gabe, I'm going to order all this stuff. I think you should do it too. And we all ordered the product and very quickly realized that there were two places coming from. One was coming from North Carolina and New Jersey. So it was all these other brands that were on, you know, online sales that were U.S.-based companies, but they were only coming from two shipping addresses. So diving into it further, we realized that there was only two USDA-approved uh, plants. And why is that so huge? Is because there's a thousand, you know, smokehouses or jerky companies, manufacturers that can make you. Uh, jerky product, but there's was only there's only two USDA built on plants, and why the reason is is because there's a center of identity at the USDA on what jerky is. That is, if you follow these steps, you're going to have the proper lethality to make a shelf stable product that you could sell at retail, and that's all it is. You can make, you know, Tyler, you can go down tomorrow and, and start a built on bar and make built on and serve it to customers, but you could never have that product go to retail without being a USDA approved facility, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I know so like, that, to do food products, there's a lot, you know, I go to the farmer's market for most of my vegetables and meat and stuff here. And, and to be able to produce any kind of packaged product, like there's a lady that sells some great homemade granola, but for her to be able to sell it at retail, she had to go to a food safety course and get certified to use a, you know, a certified kitchen and produce it inside of an approved facility. It's, it's a real process, man. Oh, absolutely. And two companies went through that process. And unlike jerky that you don't have to prove that your product is safe for consumption because they, the USDA has already deemed it. If you do these steps, it is safe for uh, our human consumption. We had a shelf stable product ready to eat non-heat treated and now that's where usda had the biggest time and that's been the biggest barrier to entry of biltong really growing because if you look every other country besides the united states biltong or biltong is a top seller over jerky and more people are familiar with and enjoy jerky or enjoy biltong more than jerky 
And so for you guys, you found a plant that was already USDA approved and then you're able to tell them, okay, well, I want this flavor or something like this, or do you still have to get some sort of approval? Right. So how we made our first product is we, we used our sports nutrition background to add some natural flavoring to really enhance. We came up with a chicken and turkey baked bites with fruit inclusions and used our natural flavoring because in the sports nutrition industry, it flavor you have to flavor some really bad tasting stuff. <laughs> yes, you do. So we use that inside knowledge to be able to really enhance the natural flavors in there with all natural process, but they, you know, they could, they condense down whatever process. So you, that pungent flavor is, out. I mean, when you went to these fa- uh, facilities that were making our product, the whole place smelled like pineapple or mangoes that day. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, well, what happened we, with that? Because uh, that's obviously a different product than the built-on. That right. You're so that was our fir- that was our first one, and immediately we saw consumer and buyer love this product as much as we did. I mean, when we bought the product from the thing, we we're like, first off, either the macros are lying, or this product has to taste terrible because it, the <laughs> nutritional panel is so simple and so healthy, and the nutrition fact panel is so much better than jerky. Why hasn't it been factor? And, and it's basically what I was leading up to with there's the USDA barrier to have a non-heat treated product that is shelf stable. And since we didn't have that, since built on doesn't have that identity, you have to prove through challenge studies that it is. So you have to go and invest your own money and pay for these very expensive challenge studies, which there's only about five uh, laboratories in the United States that can do these challenge studies because the pathogens that you put on the product is a very controlled substance by the USDA. So, so while we were waiting for our six-week lead time to work with turkey and chicken, baked bites that we are doing, we said, you know what, this Biltong will just generically approve it because it's someone else's product that will put our label on it, and we were planning labor, you know, branding our company. Well, we saw what, how huge a success we were having with buyers saying, when can you produce this? Um, our network of people and hiring on our president uh, that handles our sales – uh, had 20 years of meat industry experience going from uh, Jack Links to a company called Fusion Jerky and increasing sales rapidly in both of those companies. So we had tons of connections into buyers immediately and showing them this product, they loved it, but very quickly realized that the cost structure would not be beneficial and nor could we ever compete in mass market, nor could the standards of these facilities ever work. So we opted to do in month four of our company of selling to do acquisitions because this product was so fantastic. It had such better qualities and you you have better texture. You have the no nitrates, you have everything under the roof. It's so hard to really pinpoint something to market to people because it's almost better in every category and everyone should know about it in every generation and every, uh, you know, um, household income would love this product because it has such great benefits to it. So you say acquisitions. Did you just buy the plant that was already USDA approved? Correct. So the two plants that we had, uh, North Carolina, New Jersey, is the two plants that are USDA approved. Now, we did it as a strategic plan to first be able to get to the market faster because if we, as I said, again, if we wanted to do it, we'd have to prove that our method was uh, safe for human consumption. No, these plants have been in existence for 12 and 8 years. They've made great products. And actually, the the one that highlights our re- recipe in North Carolina was a recipe that was five or 400 years old. Wow. And so I imagine this also makes it pretty hard for competition to spring up because you guys control the entire supply chain. Currently. Now, I... If you look at, you know, global trends that I believe that people aren't far from us and people will get into the works of wine producing and now USDA being comfortable and, and understanding that, you know, there are some that ha- have proven their challenge. So now everyone's going to have to do their own, you know, challenge study by the right authority and allow the USDA to look at that and make sure their process is correct and it's safe for human consumption. But we won't be the only ones. This this is going to be a very quickly trending uh, snack, and 2019 is going to be very large. All right. Well, it never hurts to be first. So correct. I'm curious. Yeah, you to, look at, well, go ahead. 
No, I was just saying we love the we love the fact that we're first movers. We would we want people to associate, strive with Biltong. That when you say, "Oh, I love that," you know, Biltong, or you think about Kleenex or Band Aids or all these other names that people use, that would be you know huge for us. That that you know, strive is that staple of what Biltong should be. Yeah. So it, it's you know you mentioned that you had were afforded the luxury of being able to take your time and figure this out. Presumably, you had a good NFL salary, and the guys sold their companies. So, is this whole company self-funded, or did you go out and raise capital from others as well? So, initially, this this the plan was me, Joe, and Ted can self-fund this. But I'll you know reflect back to what our first plan was: is you know leverage our connections, kind of kick out sports attrition, you know, use uh, you know my NFL and NCAA connections to get placement there and, you know, do a well company. Now, when Billiton came to the mix and realizing that we had to acquire companies now where Ted, you know, me and Joe have life-changing money. Ted has, you know, truly uh, different status, life-changing money. And the dynamic between the three of us is so well it is that, you know, we wanted to maintain that partnership. So we elected, instead of, you know, becoming Ted's employees to uh, take funds from outside uh, the Class A shares. Okay. And now you are co-founder and CEO, correct? Correct. So what sort of things do you work on on a day-to-day? What is your role within the company? So so me and Joe split uh, the, co, the co-CEO. And I think it's beneficial for us that way because really there is two different you know companies here. There's the production side of the company, and then there's the sales and marketing side of the company. Uh, so Joe and I oversee all of the things, but we directly day-to-day operations. I handle over operation manufacturing, and Joe's over sales and marketing, and we both look over finance. You guys have only been in business for about a year, right? Correct. We started our first sale date where we made product that able to sell was August of 2017. Okay. And we're talking in December of 2018. So about a year and a half. And Correct. it sounds like you were working on this well for maybe at least six months or so prior because you had that waiting period, right? Yeah. So we formed the LLC in February. Me, Joe, and Ted got together in February of 2017. So that's still pretty quick. We're still talking under two years. And you guys have the product in Walmart, CVS, GNC, and it's selling online on Amazon, which is impressive in its own right, but I think more so considering how quickly that happened. Are these test markets with these stores, or is this nationwide with these chains? They're test, they're test stores with all of them, but we're being expanded in all, in all the categories that you mentioned. And do you think that, let me back up and give a little bit of my background and and maybe some background for our listeners who aren't familiar with how this works. So I used to have an energy drink product that I was trying to get into convenience stores. And we could get into the mom and pops, no problem. But as soon as we approached the chains like Quick Trip and 7-Eleven, it was basically, they had their hand out. It didn't matter how good the product was. It didn't matter how good it looked. It, it, it almost didn't matter what our marketing strategy was. It, what mattered was how big of a check were we going to write them. And so I'm curious, with you coming in, you, know, you have some celebrity status as a pro athlete, and your other guys have the experience, but what is, how are you getting this into these big national chains as such a new product? I think it's, so these buyers are challenged with the task of growing their categories. And now meat ca- the meat snack category, the salty snack category, has, is a uh, very large and increasing uh, you know, category. And you know, they're challenged to grow in their department uh, snacks. And every other, besides the major players, you know, Kai Negra and Jack Links, have any big that they put in there to try to grow their category has failed in Flounder. And we, it's very simple question. You ask them, it's like, how has your other, you know, jerky companies that came in there done there? They say, well, poor that anything that goes that route fails. And it's like, that's right. Because, you know, growth in a category is due to innovation. 85% of all growth is due to innovation. And I mean, the meat snack category really hasn't seen true innovation except for unique flavors for the past, you know, century. I mean, I mean, the century would be too long because even people didn't know what jerky was. People assumed Slim Jim was the only jerky product back then, but then Jack Link's blew it up. 
So it's very easy that, you know, you say like innovation is growth and we put it together a team of complete, you know, I don't know if I can swear, but you know, BAs bad, you know, and I'll let you fill in the rest, uh, that have handled this before. I mean, our board is very impressive and we have, um, I mean, even, even our actual, uh, membership or our executive team is very impressive to go, you know, if you just go throughout the whole line, you show them like, we've done this before. We know how to do this. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of would be a good, so Kevin Vivian's on our board. He directed, uh, $8 billion in sales. He was the president of Frito-Lay, uh, for sales. Now, how did you attract these people? Because you're right. These are some big names. And I feel like those people already have relationships with these major chains, which at least get you in the door. Whereas that was something I struggled with as a startup with nobody on my team. Just getting meetings was like pulling teeth. So like, how do you attract that level of talent? Is it just that you can pay them a lot or are they just enthralled with what you're doing? Uh, I think the uniqueness of Biltong bringing to the category is huge in itself. Our personal network of who we know is robust and well, but um, I think the people that we attract that have brought in um, meaningful partners, um, Jay Cabs has brought in, which is our largest uh, participant in our first round of capital raise, um, has a huge network. I mean, knows the CEO of Sprouts, knows the CEO of Thrive Market, knows all these people. And it's really, I, I go to the beginning, if you really want to have success and that's, I mean, that's why I say my one credit that I know at least that in order to win, you, you build a team and find people that can do it together. No one man can build this thing as fast as it happened. No, it took a group of people that all saw the opportunity and talked and, and, and work together with different areas of expertise and grow it this fast. All right. Okay. So if I were a startup, if I were going to do something like this again, enter whatever space that, but let's just say the food space and I didn't have that kind of network, where would I start? Like, where would you start if you didn't have access to those people? I almost feel like get a really well-known athlete on board as a spokesperson and, and sponsor because they tend to have really good networks and then it just sort of blossoms from there. But, like where would you but start? what happens that that's not even a possibility because how, what's really happening there is that there are these private equity firms that approach athletes that have the connection to get to the athletes and say, Hey, we're building this brand we're, we want you to be involved with it. And that's how they start the whole conversation. So they build the brand and present it to the athlete versus, you know, you're just saying, Hey, I, I have this idea and everything like that. It, so that's not the route. If I was going to, give advice to an entrepreneur that's thinking about starting a thing is that the digital realm is probably your best space online retail because it is so, and as you said, you had to pay to get on space. It's pay to play in these areas. So unless you're, um, you got great connections somehow through, uh, private equity firms that you partner up with, or you have a great connections with higher management in the company, it's going to be very hard for anyone to give you a shot. And most likely, you'll just be lucky to get a mating, if anything. Right. Now, would you recommend the private equity route? Uh, absolutely. I think you need a partner set yourself up. If you want to have success, and as I said before, no one man can do it yourself. So if you don't have that connection, it'd be you know, sitting down, you know, proving yourself to an online retailer that you can build your company once you build that up, say, hey, I need help. You, you have to admit your own strengths and weaknesses. Say, I, I, know how to do, I know how to sell. My product is great. It's doing well. I've learned Amazon. I learned all these e-stores. I know my e-commerce. It's working well, but I need to find that partner that will help me get into retail. And that's a, you know, you know find one customer and support the ever-loving ever uh, ever hell out That's of That's all right. You, you can say bad words on this podcast. Okay, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you want to support, I mean, I come from the, it's been hard to train myself from the locker room talk, you know, now to the corporate. So, yeah, it, and support the ever-loving hell out of that one customer. Prove up that, continue to grow. And as fast as you want to grow, it's as fast as you want to give up. Yeah. Now, do you guys? Uh, what? Whoa. Let's let's back up. Uh, fast you want to grow, fast you want to give up. You mean like how much equity you want to give up to uh, either VCs or investors? Yeah. If I'm if I'm talking to a young entrepreneur that doesn't have a lot of capital, they're going to have to be willing to give up, you know, a significant amount, unless you, you know, have some kind of 
you know, going into the food snack category because you know anyone could kind of, except for biltong, but almost any other snack brand, someone can break down what you made and make it again. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. If unless it's you know you invented something, you have a patent on it. Well, now you can demand more of your equity and, and selling, and you still, I think, even if you're going into the that kind of uh, uh, route, you're still going to need people that have the connections to retailers that get you that meeting that can back you and support all the other stuff that you don't know about because you're an inventor, you're not a sales and marketing person. So it's finding that while you're part, you find the partners that you know are your weakness and that they're, that's their strengths. Yeah, I, I think you, you brought up a good point in of you know if you don't have proprietary IP or like you guys where you kind of own the supply channel for at least a short term sort of monopoly on this like if you just have proven that you can build a brand and successfully gain retail then what you're really bringing to the table is momentum you know you've you've got something that people like and it's easy for them to just pour fuel on that fire as opposed to starting from scratch and just coming to them with an idea yeah absolutely and i I think i'm enamored by um i'm a meaningful partner brought me a couple of guys in California that do this truff, uh, truff hot, uh, hot sauce. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. So truff hot sauce is an unbelievable hot sauce. I'll give them a little plug on this thing because I love the guys. And their hot sauce is legitimately one of the best hot sauces I have. It was on Oprah's top gifts for this Christmas. But they do virtually all their sales on their own platform. And, you know, they're in the million revenue a month on their own platform and it's tremendous with and then with three employees wow so i mean i think if you really want you know a hold as much possible you have to gain momentum exactly like you said and do it on the, on the digital platform yeah all right so i think you, that's the one thing that, that we miss this what's that truff t-r-u-f-f okay and you're starting to say that's the one thing you think you missed was something i think in two, if i could look back in 2018 i think we we had such a focus on brick and mortar retail, which I mean, at the end of the game, that's what's really going to win it. But we didn't pour enough resources or time and effort into the digital, uh, our digital marketing. You guys have an online store. Like I was clicking around to get some pricing that I want to ask you about in a minute. But um, and then you also sell through Amazon. Is it how does that mix work out? Selling direct off your site versus Amazon, or are they connected somehow? It, at the end of the day, that's never going to be our biggest. Um, you know, our biggest revenue. And I'll say this because in industry, the industry is a $1.2 billion meat snack industry. Only 44 million are on online sales a year. Oh, well, is it just impulse small. buys you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the number one thing. You know, convenience stores, there's 270,000 convenience stores in the country. There's 70,000 grocery and it keeps on ratcheting down very quickly from there. I mean, Walmart's three, one of the largest with only three, you know, three, Hundred or sorry, three three thousand five hundred um, stores. So yeah, I mean it, it's huge for awareness, and obviously it's an easy revenue maker for us. Well, convenience stores in particular were tough in my day with the energy drinks because we were fighting for very small amount of available shelf space, and we tended to get shut out by the big. You know, basically Coke, Pepsi, Red Bull, Monster bought all the shelf space, and there was just absolutely physically nowhere to put our product unless we brought in a very expensive fridge. So how do you, you know, in, a, in an environment like that where you're fighting for inches of shelf space, how do you guys position yourself in there? How do you get in there? And like, how do you stand out against the Jack links and the, um, the other meats and meat sticks that are gross? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's, it's absolutely hard. And I, I would say that the beverage is, is even a, a more competitive space. I mean, meat snacks is very competitive, but that beverage space is very competitive as well. Um, you have to build national uh, field marketing campaigns. It's the only way to do it. That's that's the way we gain product awareness. I mean, our product is, I'm sure, just like your, I, I guarantee you probably had a better tasting energy drink, you know, throughout the roads and had better ingredients at that. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to have that customer awareness and customer buy-in and customer loyalty. So um, we have about 14 different um, field marketing managers. We have two regional uh, field that manage those uh, field managers. And then we have about um, 10 brand ambassadors underneath those that are part-time jobs underneath them. And their pure focus every day is going out sampling our program at our retail stores. That is so people are aware. So what that is a huge team and and it's a big expense. 
but that is the only way to do it. There, there is no other way. I mean, as far as getting into that retail space now, you know, digital is different and, and the cost is significantly less than that. But then in our day, we're, we're, we're ready to play in the big league. Whereas I told you that, 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 uh, online, that online, uh, Revenue is only $44 million. We're looking at the $1.2 billion, you know, going after that market share. So let's kind of segue into marketing by way of that retail strategy because to get out and do the sampling is a marketing thing. So are you guys kind of growing on a, a regional basis, you know, like picking a spot and then expanding slowly from there? Or are you just kind of shotgunning it to wherever stores will pick you up? No, regionally would have been smart. Um, we did it based on our customer. <laughs> we did it based on our customers. And although we have tests and all those large retailers that you mentioned earlier, they decided to spread us across all 48 states and, you know, and expect success out of that. Well, we took that challenge and where we floundered probably for the first four months, we realized there's no way to do this, but to do our own field marketing. Now you pay for programs and programs are expensive, even more expensive than doing it yourself. They would average, you know, five to six bags, you know, per sampling where we average anywhere from 12 to 20 because we have people that care and passionate and love the company because we are. I mean, we're a fun environment to work for. I mean, we all have fun here every day. And when you say programs, are you talking about like when I go to Costco and I see somebody in there sampling? Right. We, we jokingly call them the, the lunch lady, you know, <laughs> samplings that, you know, it's not that it's not the look that, you know, Strive wants. We want that fun, energetic, personal person that is active, not fitness, just active um, and lives that lifestyle. Just just like me, Joe and Ted live. How do you figure out like what? percentage of product what what percentage of your inventory you guys can afford to sample out or do you just kind of are at this point are you just sampling anything it takes right now it's anything it takes but i mean at the end of the day our you know our metrics is we want to we want to put 20 percent of our total revenue our total sales back into marketing so that'd be part of that okay. part of that expense all right so let's talk other marketing activities. Like I mentioned that the way I found out about it was your PR company sent a box full of stuff to my office. I, you know, it wasn't, they never reached out ahead of time. Just all of a sudden I got a box of fun stuff and, um, I tried it. I liked it. I, I included it in a little roundup on bike rumor about, you know, like healthy snacks for when you're out riding. And then I reached out to her and thought this might be a fun story, but obviously that's not how you're going to reach like anybody and everybody, what, uh, what else are you guys doing for marketing? So, yeah, I mean, you would be considered the micro influencer, right? So there's tons of micro influencer and they're prevalent on Instagram. You, you, you want to partner with people that can help support your brand. You partner with PR forums that help give either they do reviews on it as far as their own YouTube channels. I mean, that's part of the whole digital uh, brand awareness sector, which is great for, People starting to recognize it because what they say it's five points or eight points before a consumer will decide to purchase a product. I mean, it, you have to hit it on all fronts. So, so yeah, PR firm we we partnered with Greatest as well. Um, they have one of the biggest click through rates and highest readership for millennial women online. I mean, I think the click through rate on their emails is like forty percent, which is absolutely ridiculous. I'd never heard of it beforehand, but our director of marketing, she's female, and she's like, "Oh yeah, uh, all the uh, you know, all my friends, you know, read this and learn about that." And was one of the great things. Uh, programs like Moms Me, which is a network of moms that try products and give reviews on it, was been huge. So we did a thing with them. I mean, I think we had over, you know, five thousand people sign up for. Uh, and it's only a narrow, like two hour thing of mom's meet of all oh, would love to sample your product with my friends and try it and, and tell you what to think. And I mean, that's really what we're here. We're, well, we're, we're in a new age, right? So it's not millennial moms anymore. It's, it's millennial parents. And that's truly who we're, I think is our key demographic when you look at this, because our natural groceries is probably our biggest consumer. I mean, we all are in Walmart and CVS and hopefully some other big ones that I don't want to jinx by mentioning it here. Um, that, that, those are all great key players to, for, you know, a robust company. But our demographic is that natural grocer consumer, which is the millennial parent is shopping at. All right. So sampling is huge. What about just like, uh, you know, social media ads or are you guys producing videos to try and get any kind of viral hits? Yeah, we're doing that. Uh, it, I think we came on kind of at the wrong time with some of these 
younger companies are able to really capitalize on that. I mean, I th we just met with the Richardson Group here in Dallas. They gave us a huge 101 on digital marketing literally this morning, so I am much more comfortable to have a conversation on this now than I would have been even yesterday. I mean, they have so much data in there where in the beginning, you know, Facebook, before it went public, had was anyone could follow the company and they could uh, uh, legitimately um, advertise to their following for free. And as soon as they went public, they said, yeah, that's great. You have all these followers. But now if you want to see more than – if you want your followers to see more than 1% to 3%, you have to pay. You have to pay to reach your own followers that you created. Yeah, it's weird. We could track that on Bike Rumor with our site traffic. You know, there was that heyday when they would promote anything that you did as a publisher because they wanted you to benefit from that. And then it's slowly, they're just more and more they're charging. And it's not just me, like all publishers I've talked to have seen that same curve where once they flick that switch, the traffic, inbound traffic from Facebook all dropped. And so it's, it was, it was great for a while and now it just sucks. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the only way to do it is you have to pay. And that, I mean, that's pay. what all the it's, – it's pay to play in that space too, but there's still some clever ways that you can get around it and not spend that much. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of, you know, places to find and educate yourself up on that for, you know, entrepreneurs looking into that thing. But, yeah, it's just – it's really eye-opening on that thing. And just even, like, you know, looking at your advertisement, you know, what ratio you want to put in there, what uh, – Facebook – our Instagram made no Facebook uh, did a, a camera in a or, um, they viewed they looked at people's uh, site on their phone and what area that they would look at it was like 90% only look at the picture and then the next spot they would look at is the title of it and then then who it was by and then below would be the comments and by the you get to the comments you're like looking at one percent of people that actually made it down there. Hmm, geez. So it's, it's very impressive stuff that the Richardson Group kind of presented to us, and they're doing a whole digital uh, 2019 run for us. And that's kind of what I was mentioning earlier, that I think we didn't perform well in the digital side of it just because we did not put our resources into it and didn't quite fully understand the uh, you know, full benefit of it. I yeah. mean, we always know we needed, we needed to do on it there. We wanted it to grow, and we're, you know, we're all used to that. People could get organic growth pretty easily now. You know, we, that's what we thought that's all gone and dead. There's no way to actually organically grow uh, your following. Yeah, not quickly anyway. You can not do quickly it anymore. Years you, years. Yeah, you, can, you, you used to be able to do it unless you, you know, you have some sensation, you know, that blows you up, you know, some viral video. It's very hard to gain organic growth like it used to. Yeah. So was there anything that you did do on social or, or other traditional means of advertising that did work for you in 2018? I would I would say no. I think we flounder, and I I have to say we I I love our plan going next year or the thought process that we're going forward. I feel confident in next year, but if that's why I said earlier we we dropped the ball on that. Not dropped the ball. We had obviously resources and we we're doing stuff. I mean, you look you can look on our social media and all the stuff we were doing stuff. But was it effective? Was it well spent? I would say no. What do you, what do you think some of the biggest mistakes were? Or the biggest wastes of money and time? I would say. Uh, Probably we limit the amount of posts, increase the quality, and increase the spend that we need to do to actually get impactful and reach a new impactful uh, customer is the biggest things that we needed to do. Um, before, it's kind of you just post and you gain following because you had enough content out there that new people were seeing it. But like as, as I said, the organic growth... <laughs> Exactly. It, it, the organic growth is all in debt. It, it, where it would have worked you know, five years ago, it, that doesn't work anymore. Huh. And so is is that the strategy for 2019 is like, you know, uh, quality over quantity and then pay to boost it? That's exactly what you kind of have to do now. Uh, and it's kind of sad because, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're still teaching marketing classes where, like, you need to put, you know, you know this many posts out to get the right reach. And that's all in that just because they've monetized uh, social media now. Okay, so let's switch to pricing. I'm, I'm curious how you came up with the pricing for the different sizes. So if I wanted to go buy a little bag on your website, the small, like single serve 2.25 ounce is $7.99 retail. But then you jump up to a 10 ounce bag and it's $17.99. So you're getting like four times the product for two and a half times the price. And why is that? Labor cost. It it costs us the same amount. And the, and the actual ingredients isn't the 
problem. It's, it's labor costs, efficiencies, and the manufacturing processes that it's much easier to bag, you know, one, you know, 12 ounce bag than it is to and to move the same amount of ounce out of the or amount of product out of the building as it is to do, you know, for of the little bags. You have to pay more people to do it. Yeah, that was my hunch. I just wanted to make sure I was right, but also you know hear it from your mouth because. Yeah, it's, it's true, and I think that's why you can get like combo packs of anything really for like seems like pennies more than the single serve. Right, and I mean, that, I mean, there's also shipping. You know, that's easier on doing it with with customers that you know they're buying more product, and it's you know they're getting more of a deal. Like if you're talking about you know a twelve box of it, you're obviously are saving on the shipping on that. There's there's different ways of why uh, price points are that that what we decide they are. We're also price normally higher on our own retailer because that's overall our on our own you know e-commerce retail is priced higher than you'll find almost anywhere else it's because our at the end of the day our customers are our, our number one customers are going to be convenience club and uh natural grocery is what we believe online sales as i said 44 million out of 1.2 versus you, we really want that that bigger piece of the pie yeah well and you don't want to compete with your own retailers either Exactly. Exactly. They see that you know you're pricing it under them. They're like, well, why would I ever do business with you? Yeah. So as far as pricing goes, I mean, obviously you have your hard product cost, your packaging, and all that, which you can share how much of that you want. But how did you come up with the the MSRP? Were you looking at what the competition does, or was it purely based on what it actually costs to make your product? No, we we're looking at a little bit of everything. I would say it's kind of hard to say one or the other. Um, we want to, we are premium meat. You get more beef in our bag than other people. So eight ounces of biltong will yield is more beef in that bag than eight ounces of jerky. And the reason why that is the water content, they have more water, marinade, sugar, all that kind of stuff in there than we have. We have a drier product, which doesn't taste dry. I tell you it's drier, but it doesn't taste drier because no, of the it, process. Yeah, it's, it, it's good. <laughs> Exactly. So that's also why we have a higher protein count because you say, well, it's meat. How can you have, you know, more protein in meat? Meat is meat. And that's totally right. But if you take more water out of it, well, now that weight per protein is higher. So the fact that we're doing more beef in there, it's going to cost us a little bit more, right? Because we're actually giving more product away than a jerky place where they can sugar and water is cheap than meat. Meat's one of the more expensive. That's also why Sampling for us is really expensive because we're not giving away product. We're giving away product that's, you know, $3 a pound versus popcorn is, oh my God, I can't even tell you what popcorn is a pound. It's probably ridiculously cheap. We're not, let's just put it our way. Our, our cogs on a, you know, popcorn might be cents where we're in the dollar zone. Right. Okay. So what management or operational challenges keep you up at night? Um, so we have a plant that's being opened up in Medill, Oklahoma. That is the state of our Belton facility. It can produce, um, it will be able to reduce at its max capacity, uh, 40,000 pounds of Belton sticks and 40,000 pounds of raw, and this is raw, of uh, Belton slabs a day. And we're looking at 100 plus million revenue being produced out of that facility in a year. That's now, insane. Our plant, Right, I, I can't and, even and think that, of how that, many cows that, that is. A lot, <laughs> yeah. but luckily, top round isn't the most desired piece of uh, meat on the market. It's a tougher product, but obviously, the built-on process makes it very tender. So we're not having to compete with you know Ruth Christ on top round. And is that so? What's the challenge with that? Just the fact that you're building a brand new facility from scratch, I imagine, has plenty of headaches that come with it. Absolutely, construction headaches. Uh, Approval processes, uh, you know, just even setting up a new, you know, a new company in the state of Oklahoma, which Oklahoma has been so wonderful and a better place and a great place to do business. I'd recommend anyone that wants to start a company to do in Oklahoma. They are just great for business. They they really want you to succeed. And I think we were like the 500th company uh, that the governor had, and she's no longer there, but we were her 500th one. And I guess our 500th is probably the last one. <laughs> Uh, at Oklahoma, and, and they really make it good for you to want to work there. Um, utility prices are there. Our our one facility is 54,000 square foot. That's the new one in Oklahoma. Our other two ones are, you know, 
combined maybe 10,000 square feet, maybe 10 to 20,000 square feet. I couldn't tell you exactly. Um, but it will be able to produce 12 times the amount of both of those factories. And not only that, it will cost us probably, you know, 20% less in rent. Wow. As the other two factories combined. And, you know, with five times the uh, square footage. I imagine you're probably closer to a lot of supply. I mean, I know Jersey has a lot of dairy cows, but um, it seems like Oklahoma is probably closer to a lot of cows. Um, You know, uh, JBS is one of the leaders in uh, beef in the United States, and we're working with them directly now. And there's not really a sourcing problem or a logistics, you know, problem. It, it is nice being centralized in the United States. Um, but honestly, the cost of shipping meat isn't the factor. It, it's really the meat. And when you're, and when you're shipping by the truckload, which we are going to be doing now, the, the cost savings basically plateaued right there. What does it actually cost for the, the cow, not for transportation? Right. All right. The, I imagine you said, you know, there's a lot of certifications and, and, uh, regulations and stuff you have to go through with the USDA and whatnot. Are there any tips or tricks you found with working with government entities that kind of smooth that process? Cause I imagine it could go wrong real fast if you did something to piss them off. Um, yeah, I mean, you obviously want to get a, a good quality assurance guy that has USDA, um, experience or work with a co-packer because if you're going to start off a company right away, you usually don't become the manufacturer. You're, you work with a co-packer that's done it for years. They'll kind of guide you through the process on uh, getting USDA approval if, if you ever do want to uh, do it. But it's, the trade spend in the meat snacks is very hard. And to you know, grow to where a big company will come in and acquire you, you have to have the trade spend. You have to have manufacturing margin in there or else you just can't compete. What do you mean by trade spend? Uh, marketing dollars that you have to put towards uh, in a category. So the meat snack category, the trade spend for meat snacks is higher than a lot of other categories. Meaning like, like I am thinking of like the beef, it's what's for dinner campaign like that. Like you're spending to promote the meat snack category as a whole. No, no, not as a whole. So, uh, our, so the Jack links holds about 50% share of our market, which is, you know, means there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages to that, but they, you, you messing with Sasquatch, obviously, you probably know most people can, can't look at a TV commercial without seeing messing with Sasquatch. So they, your leader in your industry kind of shows you how much they're willing to spend. And not only that, but the shelf, the cost is to stay on shelf or to get shelf space. That's also trade spend. Okay. So okay. what you were talking about earlier with, you know, you had to pay all this money to get on shelf. It's, that's part of trade spend. And the, you know, category leader will kind of, you know, dictate what that price is going to be. Or the the leader and the second in the second to almost leader will because they'll compete for it and whatever that top price that they're going to start paying for is kind of what the trade spend's going to be. Huh. Yeah, which, which reminds me, I was going to ask you about the competitor stuff. So you, you say it's a one point two, one point three billion dollar market for meat snacks. When you're going in, are your sales and growth coming at the expense of your competitors, or do you think you're attracting new customers because it's a healthier? product. I don't imagine everybody who's buying beef jerky and especially products like a Slim Jim are necessarily the most health conscious customer. Yeah. So 7-Eleven, you know, coined it as that's a bubble. That's a bubble buyer. That's, you know, the beef jerky, gas station beef jerky that, you know, doesn't care about health. And then, you know, your millennial parent would be the one that's, you know, what's good for the family. What's all good at that. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons of you're going to have kind of that flow over and um who you're going to get as a customer i mean our key demographic is not bubba because bubba doesn't really care ultimately you know how he looks or anything like that but you see america trending in a very sugar sensitive thing so you know bubba might be shrinking dramatically you know as these generations kind of change change uh who's the primary consumer in the united states Okay, last question. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but if you can expand on any other tips, I'd like to ask what advice you would give to budding entrepreneurs that might want to do something similar? I would say get a team of like-minded individuals that will be willing to do whatever it takes, big, borrow, and steal to get the job done at the end of the day because at the end of the day, I know the people that I partnered up with, 
won't stop and we will all get we'll we'll fight everything we have to be able to get it we all come from sports and that's kind of why i trusted it to begin with um you have to have that just hunger to be able to you know get up early and, and finish it at the end of the day and do whatever it takes travel the road you know hit 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 retail hit you know investors hit it all and so it's a you know, full-time job, there's no weekends, there's no time that you're not away from your cell phone where you have to answer it and be the, you know, on call at all times. So be ready for that. Partner with people that you truly know and can trust and and will do the same for you. Um, then outside of that, you have to look at, you know, that's your, you know, that, those are your team. That, that's, that's who you work in and out with. But then you have to partner strategically with outside investors if you want to grow and expand. That can help leverage where you're weak, with your, you know, your employees or your partners that, you know, are working with you where you guys are weak, you have to partner with people that can, you know, lean assistance to give you strength in areas that you're weak, whether that's marketing is where you're weak. Most people I'd say would probably, that's their, will be their strength as entrepreneurs marketing and, you know, getting that out there. But, um, logistics, it could be, um, getting distribution. It could be, you know, because there's, there's plenty of money out there but there's not a lot of smart money. You want to find the smart money out there. You want to partner with the people that can truly lean in and give you help. You know, maybe it's analytics into your own company where you, you know, you could, you have huge cost savings. You know, there's a number of different, different uh, private equity people that have different strengths and different reasons. Don't just take money for the sake of money, but take time to understand really what you, how you each can benefit. And honestly, at the end of the day, it will save you time because you won't waste your time with people that won't give you benefits because the people that can see that they give you benefit, not just money benefit, ultimately are going to be the ones that are more likely to partner with you because they see that their money's they can influence their money in a more efficient way. Right on. Okay, I, I want to expand on that just slightly and sort of backtrack. You know, I know you said for you to for you guys to grow at the rate you want to grow, you needed to take on investment capital, and I do think that in that in the food and beverage industry that that can definitely accelerate it but do you think it's a, a requirement do you think for anybody in the food and beverage category like do you really need like have to bring on outside capital to be able to grow quickly or well, you, you need to bring out you need you know you need to bring on outside partnership i think i don't think everyone has every connection in order to grow rapidly i mean you can do micro influencer if, if you're a regional if you want to make it really big in a, a region and na- nationally, yeah, you can probably you don't need to bring it outside money, but you're going to grow at a much slower rate at the end of the day. And and when you're looking, you know what you want to do. I mean, I guess it all depends. You want to, you know, do a generational thing, or do you want to, um, do you want to build a company for your kids, or do you want to, you know, build a high profit, high volume, high velocity company? I mean, in order to do that, I think you have to partner with the right people, and you're going to have to, you know, you get a little bit and you give a little. All right, um, well, Gabe, thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. All right, Tyler. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. As I re-listened to this episode to create my show notes, it really reinforced the notion that I should have taken VC money when I had my energy drink. I flew to New York, met with several firms, and then did nothing. I thought having a great product and lots of enthusiasm would be enough. I was so wrong. Like the meat snacks industry, the energy drink market in the early aughts was hyper-competitive with brands spending millions on marketing. I was selfish and wanted to keep a majority ownership, but then had no resources to hire the right people and grow against overwhelming odds. So we failed, and I'm still paying off debt from that business. Gabe's advice to take on smart money is sound if you want to grow big and grow fast. Yes, you'll still need a good product, but to truly succeed in a competitive retail environment costs a lot of money and requires the right talent. And there's no segment as competitive as the food and beverage space, perhaps because it's one of the few industries that's hard to transition to majority online sales. What really stands out from this conversation is Gabe's emphasis on building the right team of people. His parting advice reinforces the notion that all parties need to have the same work ethic, enthusiasm, and willingness to do what it takes to succeed. Couple this with the advice from another recent Build Cycle interview with Jeffrey Hazlett about weeding out underperformers and naysayers, 
and you'll have a group of people to take you and your company to the next level. Speaking of which, can you help me take this podcast to the next level by checking that app you're listening on right now and giving me a quick rating or review? That's kind of like our trade spend here in the podcast world, and it helps me get bigger, better guests for you. As always, thanks a ton for listening. Here's hoping, if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. Until next time, keep building.